Welcome to the Comedy Quota, the only EU ratified podcast in the city with me, your host, Jay Burnley. And in a week where boundary changes have been pushed through on political constituencies, the Quota's initial joy was short-lived, as we realised that the coming call of MPs wasn't as literal as we first thought, and that it would also lower the quota of buffoons to mock. The Comedy Quota, keeping its safe seat by employing Andy Coulson as our PR guru. But before we snigger about the implications of a hung parliament, here's a quota of what's on the show. On our podcast this week, we split it 50-50 with City Talks breakfast show presenter Mick Coyle Obliga. taking us through the history of comedy in video games. And we've also got our final slice of Edinburgh as we sat with Whovian, defender of the Beeb and former Blue Coat pupil Mitch Ben. They're all a bit weird in Didsbury. So this week we're going 100% geeky. First up, it's Mick Coyle, City Talks breakfast show host and gaming fanatic. In terms of console knowledge, I'd be a ZX81 and he'd be the PlayStation 4. Uh, we asked him onto the show to talk about the humour, uh, intentional or otherwise, uh, in the history of computing. And now all our base are belong to him. So I'm not in the bunker today, I'm upstairs in which, which, which uh, office is this? Office uh, studio. This is Studio 2, uh, the standby studio. Uh, with uh, Mick Coyle. Uh, you do your own podcast as well, don't you? I do. Uh, I present uh, the uh, City Talk video games podcast, which is called A Link to the Cast. And I uh, also uh, tweet on all matters video games related via my uh, Twitter feed, which is Mick on Toast. You've come in to help us out uh, talk about talking about um, comedy in video games. One of the things that I've always been interested in is is comedy. Has comedy got a place within um, within video games and where does it originate from? I don't know what your first memory of finding a game humorous was. Well, the, the first one, you know, if you go back to, say, uh, Super Punch-Out on the SNES, you know, when you, when you, when you, when you wallop King Hippo... In a particular style, yeah. his shorts fall down. Now, as a, <laughs> as a child, that, that was... is absolutely hilarious. You know, you think how how funny can that be? Look, his pants fell down because, of course, it, you look at the generations of of consoles and, and the consoles that people started playing. Mm. The first lot, you, you physically couldn't see. I'm thinking Manic Miner. If his pants fell down, you wouldn't have been able to tell because he was only made up of about eight digits, uh, digits anyway. Just one pixel falls off. <laughs> exactly. So it was it was tougher to tell. But actually, when it came around to uh, the, the the newer consoles, which were we were talking eight bits and then sixteen bits, you could suddenly see things happening. And the idea of a man's pants falling down to a to an eight year old playing on a console, <laughs> hilarious. You might have to explain to some of our younger uh, listeners what eight and sixteen bit is. <laughs> so... Yeah, they don't even deal with bits anymore, do they? <laughs> it's uh, no, nobody cares about that anymore but how, the, how much of a gigabyte must that be now oh i i, I couldn't even begin to even think uh, about just how small these games much actually they must have fit on one of the old floppy disks ah floppy disks which uh and Again, then we will explain to uh, some of our younger <laughs> listeners what floppy disks are but that was so punch out you know you're talking an 80s title there as well uh and then there are some things as well which happen on games which it's unclear as to whether or not they're supposed to be funny as well. Unintentional, a, unintentional. The very humor. famous uh, mistranslation on Zero Wing, which was was basically localized by somebody who didn't speak English, <laughs> comes up with the famous line, "All your base are belong to us." And this, this became a massive sort of internet sensation. It's well, a, it? I think it's known as a meme as well. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that people theme things around this particular idea. But again, I think there were moments in in games where people thought that's quite funny. I wonder whether or not that was what inspired developers to think, actually, it doesn't just have to be about trying to physically get some 
pixels on a screen to move. Actually, we, we can try and do something with this. Yeah, and it's, it's sort of, uh, for me, it developed there for, uh, I've always been a fan of um, adventure games where it's point and click rather than sort of running around shooting things or whatever. And that's sort of, that's where I first remember humour, well, my first taste of humour was uh, Jet Set Willy, just because it had the word Willy in the title. <laughs> Again, but... an eight-year-old Willy, hilarious. <laughs> but from there, I, um, I think uh, I always had a rubbish computer. But mine, mine was stuff like uh, Monkey Island was the first one that I remember being able to play on, where they actually wrote a lot of the comedy into the scripts, uh, so it was humorous. It was it was like reading a book almost. Yeah, no, it's quite an important point to make on that one because gra- they're essentially they were they were, they were graphic adventures. Mm. So it, it was the equivalent of the old books you used to read through. Turn to page forty three if you want to turn left. Turn yeah. to page forty six if you want to turn right. And of course, when you were doing it on the book, you'd, you'd hold your finger in the page so you could turn back <laughs> if you made the right thing. Oh, I'm but, dead again. But like 1990, Secret of Monkey Monkey Island, a lot of people would have played it on the uh, on the Amiga, and mm. it was it was very amusing. But also, it was a very good game. The point and click nature of it took you on a journey. Mm. Now, the script to it added to the the fun, the sense of fun. People will remember the the, the characters. Guybrush uh, Threepwood was the name of the guy. Uh, great lines in there as well. Uh, I won't take your insulin sitting down. Why are your hemorrhoids flaring up again? <laughs> so this was obviously, by this stage, this was a deliberate attempt to, to be amusing and to have a, a funny plot within a game, which actually stood on its own merits as well as a video game. But it was developers, Ron Gilbert and then Tim Schafer, who went on to do titles like uh, Grim Fandango, which was known yeah. for being particularly amusing, deliberately attempting to make people laugh rather than going for those little elements of, of surprise. You could actually play this game and expect to find something funny, as you would if you were watching, say, a sitcom or reading a, a, you know, a comedy-related book. Uh, so where did it progress from there? Is, is it going towards more sort of newer stuff? A couple of things, really. I think what you find there is that people realise that you could be funny and actually there was the space now to have humour within games. So you'd end up with, I mean, titles which you look back at now and you think, well, OK, were they actually any good to play? Leisure Suit Larry being an example, mm. a sort of a, a womanising, uh, probably misogynist porn director constantly looking at, at women getting undressed. There was numerous famous scenes in there. Uh, that was sort of all boobs and sex, that it, sort of thing. Pixelated, though. It was uh, a, little, no, a little bit weird. Yeah, exactly. And then you get titles like Duke Nukem, you know, mm. a misogynist beefcake guy who would go around uh, uh, committing all sorts of atrocities and not really caring. But that was part of the 90s, you know, where, yeah. where that sort of laddish... Uh, I wonder if that was that culture. L- yeah, that, that laddish loaded culture was really starting to develop. I'm not sure whether or not you'd look back at those titles and go, hey, those were the days. <laughs> Monkey Island, though, you probably would. The next development, you would probably say, uh, comes in the form of Conker's Bad Fur Day. Now, this is probably the legendary funny video game title. This uh, is from Nintendo, wasn't it? Nintendo this 64, this. So this was on one of these cartridges. Uh, it came from uh, Rare. Rare were the company that made it. A lot of the, the vocals and a lot of the language used... It's full of like Yorkshire accents. It's <laughs> it's really quite strange. I know you're gonna have to use your little uh, your bad language sound effect on this one, but there's there's one character on there in one particular level where uh, essentially he's he's a massive turd. He's a massive <laughs> turd. Uh, he, his official title name is that of the the Great Mighty Pooh. Uh, when he gets into the level, he sings a song, and the the song goes, "I am the Great Mighty Pooh, uh, and I'm gonna throw my <laughs> at you." <laughs> By the way, the way to vanquish the Great Mighty Pooh was to throw toilet rolls at him. That was the way to uh, to defeat the boss level in the Clever level of the Great days. Mighty Pooh. I wonder how they came up with that one. So, I mean, that was that was 90s where it was being used, you would say, overtly. 
Yeah. So it had gone from people thinking, hmm, we can have comedy in games too. Right, yeah. let's do a game which is funny. Do, do you think do you think that comedy can actually work in games as well, though? There's the Grand Theft Auto sort of, they've actually put stand-up in there. Yeah, and... I mean, that, in many ways, that's that's the ultimate cheat, isn't it? How, how yeah. can we get humour into a video game? Well, let's just get somebody doing five minutes of stand-up and actually put that into the game. Now, what they did in Grand Theft Auto 4, this was, uh, on uh, PS3 and Xbox 360, is you go into a, a, a club, you meet a girl on one occasion, you go to a club, it's a comedy club, who walks up on stage? Ricky Gervais, playing Ricky Gervais, yeah. does five minutes of stand-up with a laughter track underneath it. But what you find as well is, within Grand Theft Auto... The quality of acting within the games has massively improved. You know, mm. we all if anyone's played the original Resident Evil on the PlayStation, uh, yeah. absolutely appalling. Hey, what are you doing? I'm just going to look into this room. Don't go in there. There might be a zombie. Instead, what you've got now, you've got script writers and you've got storytellers. And more importantly, you've got actors. Because when actors act funny... They can actually be funny. Yeah. If you just say, read this, it's supposed to be funny. <laughs> Rarely deliberately funny. Often hilarious for all the wrong reasons. So Grand Theft Auto is a really good example of a game which just to play along is amusing. Mm. If you take the comedy out, is it still the same game? Yes. But does the comedy, does the, does the humour give it a, an added depth? Definitely. Yeah. As it going on to the present day now, Portal. Portal is uh, it's a really strange story, Portal. It was a, an add-on. Essentially, it was a, a university student's project, which was added on to the Orange Box collection, which was a game which was uh, packaged with Half-Life 2. Yeah. Dead straightforward. You've got two lasers, orange and blue. I'm saying that. I'm colorblind, but... <laughs> Red, red and yellow? No, I'm going to go for orange and blue. It's orange and blue, yeah. One's an in, one's an out. So you walk into a room and you have a platform. If you fire an orange one into the wall, you walk through that and you come out of the blue one. What you've got throughout, though, you have this, this GLaDOS character who is essentially controlling the, the sort of machine in which you're worked. But it's there to sort of unnerve you when you're doing things, to almost make you think you're doing things wrong or, you, or you've turned in the wrong direction, even mm. though there's only one path, really, in yeah. which to travel. It's deliberately laugh out loud funny as well you know advice like don't forget to breathe if you you know <laughs> it's a very strange character and i think they realized they were onto something again you could have taken the character out altogether and just gone got in here work out how to do this go in here work out how to do this yeah. it just gave you that extra little tweak then when portal 2 came out at the start of uh, two, or sort of mid 2011 what they did there, they had sort of a follow-up to the GLaDOS character who was trying to help you get out of the particular situation you'd found yourself in. Mm. That was actually voiced by Stephen Merchant. Yeah. Now, this was very, very cleverly done because what you had here, you didn't just have sound effects. Hey, you know, his funny statement one. Yeah. <laughs> funny statement one through to funny statement ten and then repeat on demand sort of thing. <laughs> it was actually a scripted guide, essentially. Yeah. So you would literally play through the first 10 or 15 levels constantly being updated by the Stephen Merchant character. So, you, And I mean, you're talking, he would guide you through things, he would talk to you constantly. Hours and hours and hours, or lines and lines and lines of actual yeah. scripted, written comedy within it- a video. It's really funny. And actually, you're thinking... This is actually really funny. And and it's almost surprising because you're still in this slightly really weird world where everything's slightly strange. You still feel a little unnerved. What you've got there, though, you've got comedy within the video game. Well, if you took it out, yes, it would still be the same video game. 
but actually you don't have the same experience. So how do they move on then? What's the future? Do you, is there a room for comedy in, in um, video games? And, and what, if you had to do something with it, what would you do? I think I think the idea of, of you know the the theme in it. If you, if you look at the, I've tried to work out the sort of four different sort of themes of comedy within video games. You have got the, the cheeky sort of comedy that'll always be there. So yeah. smart talking characters and the, the little bits where you you know you hit the boxer and, and the pants fall down that sort of thing. There's the <laughs> o- making me laugh now. There's the uh, there's the overt comedy. Now, for instance, there's a title, House of the Dead Overkill, which is like a grindhouse game. Uh, the other side, you've got, you've got the scripted thing. So you end up with these games now, Red Dead Redemption. Uh, you've got games like uh, the, the Rockstar titles, I'm talking here, Grand Theft Auto, where the comedy will be built into the story, will be built into the script. You'll have wise-talking, fast-cracking sort of guys. And then you'll have the themed comedy. So the, the, the comedy which runs as an undercurrent, or undercurrent to mm. a title like a portal where absolutely what's the game about it's a puzzle game where you fire in one door and you come out the other that's what the game is but within that you've got comedy you've got it is there is there a job there for, for comedians i'm not so sure uh, clever writers yes possibly but if you are sort of a i would imagine a comedian looking to make a break probably the time now is to consider the option mm. of not just writing scripts for radio scripts for tv writing a humorous blog and trying to get some jokes away on twitter there's no real reason now why these these big companies who are making and investing hundreds of millions of pounds and making hundreds of millions of pounds on video games you know uh, making an investment in their time as well and seeing where that that will that will take you so mick if you want to hear your dulcet tones uh, where where can we find you yeah, if you want to hear me, I do the uh, City Talk breakfast show uh, going out across Liverpool, the North West and North Wales. News and sport and a bit of banter on there. That's on 105.9 from 6 o'clock in the morning. I also do the Gadget Show on a Monday, which looks at all matters technology, video games, PCs, TVs, cameras, mobile phones, tablets, laptops, that sort Everything, of thing as well. Yeah. So Mondays from 12, we do the, the technology and the gadget stuff. And on the breakfast show for uh, the breakfast show between uh, 6 and 9. Nick, thanks for coming on the show. No problem. Cheers. So check Mick out every morning uh, with a plethora of funny and informative guests on City Talk 105.9, the voice of Liverpool. Our headliner today has been on shows like Radio 4's Now Show, Radio 2's It's Been a Bad Week. Uh, He was also the 1995 New Comedian Award winner at Glastonbury. 2007 saw him win BBC Merseyside Scousology Award. He was also Personality of the Year at the Cult TV convention. In 08, he was one of the 365 Scouserati, uh, as voted in by the Echo. Uh, But to the teachers of Liverpool Bluecoat School, uh, they simply knew him as Ben. Uh, We at the quota are respectful enough to call him Mr. So without further ad who, because he's a big fan of Doctor Who, it's Mr. Ben. Uh, I'm backstage with Mitch Ben just after a performance. Uh, nice to thanks for coming on the show, Ben. Mitch, right. <laughs> don't call me Ben, man. It gives me school flashbacks. <laughs> Mr. Ben. Just for a minute, I was back in the blue coat. <laughs> so you're, yeah, you are from Liverpool. I originally. am Liverpool. Yes. Uh, where did you grow up? I grew up um, Allerton, Mossy Hill, the Beatley bit, basically. All right. Uh, I went, went to Dovedale, then I went to the blue coat. Don't judge me. Um, <laughs> So yeah, I'm, I grew up in uh, Hartel Avenue, which is the one next to uh, Coldstones Road, opposite the oh, yeah. library. Oh yeah, yeah, that was my old, that was my old street. And uh, yeah, so that's uh, good memories of growing up in Liverpool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, did, did days that you, you started musically as well? Is, well, is, I guess. I mean, I, I used to play in like school orchestras. I had piano lessons when I was a kid. It never really kind of took. And after that, I used to uh, play. Um, I got co-opted on the double bass in school orchestras when I was at Dovedale. Because somehow the, the Dovedale acquired the double bass from somewhere, and I was literally the only kid in the entire class who was 
big enough to pick it up. <laughs> As in pick it up and carry it, not pick it up musically. You, huge child, come here, play this. <laughs> and it was simply as that. So, so I ended up playing double bass in school orchestras right up until I was 18. And then weirdly, I grew up in a household full of guitars. Because uh, my mum and dad um, used to play like in funk clubs in the 60s. Um, in Liverpool? And in Liverpool, yeah. yeah. So I grew up um, in a house full of guitars and weirdly never really paid any attention to them until I was about 15, 16. And uh, then I started playing guitar when I was about 15, 16. I've never really looked back. I mean, pretty much every penny I've ever earned has been on the guitar or at least per or, you know, peripherally on the guitar ever since. So, uh, was it, was yeah. Did you start doing music and comedy together or was it just you playing in bands? And it's then, difficult then? to say because I did a lot of theatre when I was a kid. I was at the Every Man Youth Theatre when I was like eight or nine. Uh, then I uh, did like all the theatrical stuff at, at the Blue Coat, which they were very keen on back in the 80s. And I think they still are. Then when I came up here to university, because I came to Edinburgh University in 1988, uh, and basically spent what was supposed to be my degree in Spanish and French, spent the whole time basically in the Bedlam Theatre, which is the student theatre here, which is... You know, make the distinction, it's not like a dramatic society or like a you know, theatre club. It's a theatre. I mean, you must have seen it. It's a little fat yeah. black church at the end of George Fourth Bridge. Um, and the student body's completely responsible for it. They're responsible for the upkeep of the building. They're responsible for the admin. They're responsible for making all the kind of artistic direction decisions of the, you know, what they're going to program. And then, obviously, they put on the shows, direct the shows, you know, act the shows, write the shows occasionally, as I did, you know. Um, and that was basically how I spent all of my student days. And one thing which picked up while I was at Edinburgh Uni was improv, um, which yeah. is still going at the Bedlam right now. They've got their their 12.30 uh, night show, The Improverts, which is their improvised comedy show. And that began while I was at university in like 1989. And I was actually in the first generation of it. Mm. Um, and uh, from that, it all kinds of spins up because when I was, I did my degree was in Spanish and French, and in the summer of 1991, I was living in Montreal, Canada, um, because I was meant to be practicing my French. I'd been working as a teacher in Spain all year, and I was supposed yeah. to spend that summer practicing my French, and ended up living in Montreal because the guy who brought improv to our theatre group at Edinburgh was a Canadian guy, a guy called Toph Marshall, who's now living in London, so I must go and give him a shout. Um, <laughs> because that kind of uh, improv is a kind of competitive performance art. Uh, which you know was probably first popularized in this country by you know who's who's lines it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of competitive performance improv was kind of originated in Canada by a guy called Keith Johnson from the Loose Moose Company in Calgary. So it's kind of a Canadian thing. So this Canadian dude brought it over to Edinburgh, and then when I um, needed to go over to um, hey Abba, hey come in, I'm just doing a quick interview. It's okay. That's yeah. right. No, that's, that's okay. Don't worry about it. So um, I just said it out. No, my wish. it's okay. I won't That was off of it all, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I, I, I see it on TV. Um, but yeah, um, I, 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 I uh, went over to Montreal to do some. Uh, hey, Jamesy. Uh, James Dowdsall's just come in, ladies and gentlemen. It's okay. <laughs> it's don't right. worry about it. Come it's on, all right. I just pretend. I'm really, putting you in the show we, as we well. We are basically occupying other people's space. We expect to be invaded. Uh, I, I started uh, you know, doing improv and then I had to go somewhere to practice my friends that summer and he put me in touch with his old university improv nerd buddies who he'd known at McGill University in Montreal and mm. I ended up spending a whole summer hanging out with them and they has a residency in a comedy club in Montreal so I spent the whole of the summer in 1991 when I was in the middle of my degree and 21 years old it's 20 years this summer since I did my first ever stand-up Oh my God, that's only just occurred to me. Um, <laughs> well, this, this, this is the 20th anniversary of my own. Oh it's like God. a psychiatry It really is, it really is. All kind of stuff's coming out. Um, <laughs> uh, 
Uh, and, and basically I, I did stand up for the first time in the summer of 1991 because I was hanging around a comedy club in Montreal with literally nothing to do mm. uh, so I just got a guitar out dusted it off sang a couple of you know a bunch of rude songs I'd written for some student reviews back home and just got a little support slot together and spent the whole of the summer of 91 doing short spots in this comedy club in Montreal I opened up for Ray Romano you know everybody oh, loves Raymond right. yeah. yeah he'd just done his first ever TV set in 1991 and I, I was supporting him and then Came back to Edinburgh, finished my degree, and kind of forgot all about comedy for about three years. Because weirdly, up until about 15 years ago, there was almost no comedy in Edinburgh out with the festival. There mm. was no kind of grassroots live comedy scene. It just and, packed uh, up after the festival. Yeah, exactly. For three weeks of the year, you couldn't move for comedians. Then for the other you know, 49 weeks of the year, nothing. And this is always very weird. And uh, the first comedy clubs in Edinburgh started off in 94, 95. I, uh, there was one started off in 94 that I played for a little while. Then I ran my own in uh, what was then the music box and I believe it's called the Liquid Rooms on Victoria Street. Uh, oh, yeah. A bit big and vast to be a comedy club to be honest. Uh, I ran that for the 95. The original incarnation of The Stand opened up in the autumn of 1995 and uh, that was in a tiny little pub called Christie's just off the grass market. And The Stand was the one that took The Stand was the one that stayed and grew and become something and became something a bit special and a bit strong. And um, What's particularly nice about this festival, as far as I'm concerned, is the stand actually asked me to come, which is great. <laughs> this is um, an incredibly low-pressure festival I'm having, and I'm almost at the end of now because um, this is just a short run, isn't it? Well, so basically, I, I hadn't really contemplated coming here because I didn't really think I had any particular reason to come. I mean, for example, last year in August was far and away my best-paying month <laughs> for the simple reason that half the comedy industry decamps London up to Scotland and, you know, if you're staying behind, then there can be some quite rich pickings, you know. So, uh, <laughs> so, so last year, the whole of the year, August was far and away my highest-earning month. So I wasn't really coming up, uh, contemplating coming up. But then what happened was um, Todd Barry, who takes over in my slot after mm. uh, Monday, is coming over, and, and Tommy phoned us up, at, Tommy Shepherd, who runs us down, phoned us up at the blue, and I think it was, like, April, basically, when everything's meant to be done and dusted. Um, mm. And said, Todd Barry's coming over. He doesn't want to do the whole run. He only wants to do half of it. I've got this room empty for half the run. Do you want it? And I was like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm having a complete, it's lovely. I'm having, I've, I've got nothing riding on this. Is it, you've you know got, got scope to sort of indulge yourself because I've obviously done okay, a lot of the Who stuff as well. You, you? Can, well. you can kind of work on the bits. When you're doing a fringe show, you can kind of assume, not take for granted, but you can assume a degree of audience goodwill, which you yeah. can't really assume in the clubs. In the clubs, you must assume audience indifference. Yeah. You know, uh, it helps to be optimistic enough to assume that they'll give you the benefit of the doubt. But it, that's pretty much all you're getting. Mm. Whereas in an enemy show, by ne definition, even if people don't know much about you, they have made a conscious decision to come and see you. So you may assume a degree of goodwill from yeah. your audience. Um, and as such, yeah, it gives you a bit more written maneuver. That and the very fact that you're doing an hour instead of 20 minutes gives you a bit of written maneuver. So I can, you know, uh, bollock on about Doctor Who for 15 minutes <laughs> in the middle of it. Or I can, you know, um, go off on one about near-death experiences and, you know, you know, for, for a, you could, you, you've got a bit of a, a room to manoeuvre. You can still exhaust it, you know what I mean? Yeah. You can still very much wipe that audience goodwill out, or you could just go off down a direction. Which went. And the part of the thing, that, you know, I've got, I think people don't really necessarily know what to expect from me from a fringe show, because I do lots of different things, but they're all very different. Like, yeah. I mean, if I have any kind of public profile at all, it's probably from the stuff that I do on Radio the, 4. The now, show and... The show and various sort of bits and pieces. And... and by definition, a live show is not going to be that, you know. Yeah. It's not. Gonna, um, but by the same token, I also tour with my band, 
Uh, which is coming to Liverpool. It's coming to Unity, and you can imagine yeah. I made up my mummies about that. <laughs> is that the first time you've done Liverpool? Generally, has to schlep all the way to Manchester. Um, is this the first time you've done Liverpool? I think for it's the first time we've done Liverpool. The last time we did Liverpool with a band was. Do you remember the SS Fitz Corral doll? Yeah. Remember that funny little decommissioned tugboat that was off the dock? Yeah. Uh, and um, yeah, so we played that, and it leaked. Uh, <laughs> but that was fun. That's the only other time we played Liverpool with a band. Previous to that, we've been um, we've been stuck in Manchester, and people have had to come through from Manchester. We're on Manchester again. But I say Manchester. We're in Salford. We're on the Larry. Got to get that right. That'll set yeah. them off. Got to say, got to set off the South Falls. That's, that's where the BBC is. Manchester, there, is it? Yeah, it's, it's two of the BBC. You know, but I mean that's that's a constant. Topic of conversation, the BBC always saying it's going to Manchester and something. It's not bloody Manchester, it's Salford. <laughs> um, but yeah, but that's, um, I'm looking forward to that. I'm asking you to imagine my mum's very pleased. Um, but it's weird because they had that survey about six months ago about where comedians don't like playing and Liverpool won. I spent <laughs> all bloody morning on the radio. We're like, you know, Merseyside are phoning me and then after being on Merseyside, Five Live phoning me. Like, what have you been doing that? My funny thing is, and this is no disrespect to the people who run the clubs in Liverpool, I don't think there's ever been a really, really good comedy club in Liverpool. There's never mm. been a, 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 a really, really legit comedy club. The way there is in Manchester. In Manchester, yeah. you've got the Frog and you've got the Store. Yeah. In Glasgow, you've got the Stand. In Edinburgh, you've got the Stand. In Birmingham, you've got the Glee. In Cardiff, you've got the Glee. In most of big cities in Britain, you've got a the big comedy club and in Liverpool's never really had one it's got it's had baby blue on and off for a long time but it's just basically the, the, the layout of the room is weird you've got far too many nooks and crannies where people sit around the corner and snog have you done the slaughterhouse the slaughterhouse the slaughterhouse was good I mean it opened for a little and I like the dinge of it as well I like the fact that it was this grimy cellar and that was a nice room <laughs> But that keeps opening and closing, doesn't it? But so I mean, the slice is, is continual now, I think. I think that's actually is that permanent? Well, I'll, I'll have to come back at some point now, because mm. that, in terms of layout, was the favourite room I played. The best room in terms of layout was the original Raw Hag was at the Life Cafe at the bottom of Ball Street. Yeah. That was a good Those layout. It was, it was kind of a semicircle, you know, it's a bit like playing the Glee. That was a good space, and that they just no, they lost the room for that. But I don't know what happens with these things. But mm. I think there is an element of the whole thing about the smart ass scouse audience thinking they're funnier than the, uh, the comedian. There is an element of that. There's also, from my own personal point of view, what I find is that um, sometimes Scouse comedy can be a bit parochial. Uh, yeah. It's a bit like Manchester comedy was in the 90s when Manchester was well up itself on the whole Manchester thing. <laughs> and then you had the old Oasis thing and Manchester was more pleased with itself than any other city he's ever been in the history of Britain. And you go there and it'd be all these Scallymank comics doing all the Scallymank jokes for all the Scallymank mates in the audience. They're all a bit weird in Didsbury. You know what I mean? And I'm thinking, nobody in Bolton knows what you're talking about, mate. This is never going to travel, but tonight it doesn't matter. Well, what I sometimes find in Liverpool is it can all be a bit Scouse and you just get all these Scouse comics doing all the Scouse stuff to all the Scouse names. And then I'll go on sounding vaguely Scouse, but like this. And actually, genuinely have a bit of a hard time for being the least Scouse person on the bill. You know what I mean? It's it's like I'm Scouse, but I'm not Scouse enough. You know, were I in no way Scouse, I'd probably get away with it. You know, but you're I'm sort of you like silly. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, in fairness, and this is the thing which I do point out about Liverpool. Is that one of the reasons because you know here I am in Edinburgh, which if I'm honest, probably feels more like home than Liverpool does these days. But that's only because Liverpool has changed so mm. much since I was growing up there and I've got to say probably largely for the better and I think 
Um, you know, slightly to my own disadvantage because I literally just can't find my way around the city centre anymore because the places I used to hang out, it's not like they're closed down. The bloody streets have been demolished. But uh, well, I'll tell you one thing, uh, the, 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 you know, the best bit of evidence for the fact that I think Liverpool is getting better um, is that one thing I hear when I go back there, because I go back there a lot because my parents still live there. You know. mm. One thing I do, I, I, I can't help noticing that I hear in Liverpool now, which you never heard in my day, is accents other than scouts. <laughs> <laughs> Because <laughs> when I was growing up in Liverpool, people were leaving, you know, people were leaving in their thousands. Nobody was moving in. You know, nobody was coming into Liverpool. So you just, ne the only accent you ever heard was Scout. And there were also yeah. students are coming in there. And yeah, and, and staying. That's the, yeah. other, that's the difference. But, you know, students were coming from out of, out, out of town, but they're actually staying now, you know. So I've got to yeah, go. That's okay. Thanks um, for doing the interview with that's us. That's okay, Mitch. That's okay. Uh, so it's Mitch Ben. Uh, he's on at the Unity Theatre, Mitch Ben and the Distractions, the old warrior tour. The Unity Theatre on the 15th of November, uh, get tickets now. Uh, it promises to be a great show with all the songs that you might have heard him do on uh, the Radio 4 and the Radio, Radio 2 shows, uh, and some other stuff as well. We hope we've learned something this week, uh, if not just about computers, uh, also about uh, our headliner, uh, Mitch Ben. Um, and um, if you haven't, it's not our fault, it's the broken education system, as we seem to be hearing, on a broken record. Uh, next time, we will have in the studio um, Sam Avery. We'll be talking about the relaunch of Rawhide Raw. Uh, it's a little bit of a summer hiatus as the students go away, but comes back loud, proud, and very raw every Tuesday. And they'll be talking about when that launches. Um, so come join us next week on the Comedy Quota podcast. <laughs> <laughs>